Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our host, Bob Cheviar, and co-host, Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Their goal is to help players gain a more in-depth understanding of many aspects of tennis, which are often inadequately addressed during the course of their development. Bob and Scott would love to hear from you on topics for future podcasts. Hi, all. Welcome. It's Bob Cheviar, your host of Outside the Lines, and I'm here with my co-host, Scott Shannon. And our subject today is Scott and I are going to talk about the way we learn tennis as kids. And is there something of value once we share our story that modern players yourselves can learn about how to improve your tennis? Today, the typical model is the reason Scott and I are semi-retired, lessons, clinics, all sorts of input from coaches has become extremely valuable for anyone looking to improve their tennis. But that wasn't the model when we were growing up. Uh, welcome, Scott. Um, why don't you start it off by telling us about how you got into the game and uh, where you grew up and that whole thing. Sure, Bob. Hi, everybody. Nice to be back um, talking about tennis. So I grew up in Lower Westchester uh, in Hastings-on-Hudson, which was basically a tennis town, even though it was a small town of about 10,000 people. Um, it was in a in a county, you know, that uh, had many uh, small towns put together. So there was a lot of tennis in the county uh, and especially in my town. And we had courts uh, within walking distance of my house. And I grew up and belonged to a two court facility. It was a club, but, you know, it just had the only structure it had other than the tennis courts was a a shed for the roller and, and the equipment for taking care of the courts. We had red clay. And my family played tennis. So I was exposed to it through them. And as soon as I was old enough to be swinging the racket, I was doing that. My older brother also played. So I was able to play with him sometimes and some of his friends. But what basically happened was that um, we would get out and just get on the courts and use our athleticism and run around and hit the ball. And um, we got the only instruction available on the weekend with a ball machine that was fairly archaic uh, looking back on it, but it was what was available then. And we would get in a big line with like 10 or 12 kids and then uh, the ball machine would be throwing balls at us and the elders would be helping us with uh, some technique and some ideas of, you know, probably like watch the ball and don't swing so hard and da, 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 da. But um, 
that was basically the only instruction that was being given on a group level there for juniors. Um, and, you know, I just loved it and I loved all the sports and I played, you know, two or three other sports also. So I was just like a, you know, a jock, um, trying to get everything I could out of, uh, athletics. So I was basically like just playing the game and, uh, not getting uh, too much information, but learning sort of on my own. And by the time I was nine, I won uh, our club tournament. Um, it was 12 and under. So I beat a bunch of uh, 11 and a half, 12 year olds uh, to get uh, the win um, and my first championship. And, you know, it's very hard to to remember exactly like how I played, but we had wooden rackets um, and they weren't the lightest things. And I used a one-handed backhand. Almost nobody had two-handed backhands um, in my town. Uh, and then I just keep proceeding to, uh, to play more tennis. And I played on the high school team and I did get some instruction from one of the uh, good players at my club um, who really didn't know, exactly what he was doing but he was pretty good at tennis um so for whatever that did um and then i got some lessons from uh, a pro at the country club uh in in ardsley at ardsley country club and i ended up working there in the summers as a shop boy and i used to emulate the the tennis pro who had pretty good strokes um so i was a really good copier of motion. So if I was looking at the right players, I was being really helped. And I was also in a job uh, where I was actually on the court, like playing so much of the time because there were nobody, there was nobody at the courts. So we didn't have to serve the members. And I had six, six grass courts there and six clay courts there. So that was really a tremendous part of my development is that I just played like thousands and thousands of hours um of tennis you know scott um you mentioning uh the wooden rackets and starting off around nine i think it was very similar for me i got a hand-me-down from my dad and my first racket as a nine-year-old was a four and three quarters heavy <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking the other day about that I was one of the few two-handed backhand players around at that time. Cliff right. Drysdale was sort of a model among the top pros. He was in the uh, the labor era. But now I'm thinking about why I developed a two-handed backhand. There's no way I was strong enough to swing that racket with one hand. Like you were saying, you developed a one-handed backhand right away, and it was a free and natural stroke for you. But I, I think the other part that was really interesting for both of us is the lack of coaching that we had as young kids and that our love of the game and our desire to succeed all came from one place, and that was that we hated to lose. And I think it's so important because the structure of tennis itself the big price that players of all levels pay for making unforced errors 
the fact that you have to hate to miss has to be part of the way that you're coming up in the game. I think maybe quite a few of our listeners have watched some of the series on Netflix, uh, Breakpoint, and episode three was on Berrettini and his rise in the last couple of years to the top echelons of tennis. And our last podcast was about fear. So when I saw the introductory remark, when he said something, it's all just not much different, but then the fear kicks in. And I was like, wow. So I actually watched that episode. Um, for real tennis fans, it's just average, I would say. But I watched that one to see what he was talking about. And he wasn't talking about fear, as we did in our podcast. He was talking about hating to lose. When he's out there in a match, the thing that really kicks in when he realizes I'm trailing or I'm not winning and how much he hates to lose, that emotional stance was a key element in our development as tennis players. Now, the other thing you mentioned there, Scott, was the ability to imitate. Who, if, you know, the adults were just pretty good club players at your club. When were you first exposed to watching actual top players? Because there wasn't much tennis on television. When were you exposed to being able to emulate, see them and emulate top players? I went to the U.S. Open uh, at Forest Hills and watched the best players in the in the world. I think, as I mentioned in our earlier discussion, I was able to see uh, up close and personal uh, a match between Pancho Gonzalez and Tony Roach. Um, and so I took a lot away from that in terms of how they played on grass and they were coming in uh, all the time. And, but just those basic strokes that you see them swinging at the ball and volleying and hitting overheads and all the strokes, uh, you begin to get an idea of uh, what's supposed to be happening. Uh, I saw um, some great American players um, also, but I remember I was still in high school. I went to Madison Square Garden and I saw the, um, the year-end finals, like the WCT finals for the men between Rod Laver and Arthur Ashe. And, oh, my God, you cannot believe how exciting that was. And I was like a videotape in my mind. I was just soaking it all up. And especially Ashe. Laver was kind of hard to imitate in some ways because his, his strokes were so sophisticated and wristy and spinny and stuff. But Ash, oh, I just love the way he played. And um, maybe my backhand is a little bit um, from observing him. Uh, and that match was so exciting. I can't even remember who won that match, but it was something else. Well, I, I know who won the match because Ash's record against Laver was something like 0-20. Yeah. So Laver definitely won the match. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, now, in terms of backhand also, the, Ash was well known at the time for the amazing variety that he had. And some commentators used to say, 
Well, he has 41 backhands. Sometimes he gets confused as to which one he wants to use. <laughs> it never it never got that complicated for you, though, right? You probably imitated one of these and one of those, and that became your backhand. Yeah, a flat one and then uh, being able to use slice. Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing I wanted to mention, Bob, that we were we were talking about before when it comes to, uh, you know, the fear of losing and re or really hating one, you know, hating to lose. Uh, I also thought about the fact that in, in tennis and playing singles, you're all alone. You know, if you make the mistake or you lose the point, it's it's on you. It has to do with what your performance is. So you have to really take responsibility and you can't say, oh, you know, I, the plane was flying overhead or there was noise on the street and make excuses. You know, it was really something that immediately just came back on you. So you had to be mentally and emotionally tough enough to handle that because you're going to make a lot of errors in a match. Um, and, you know, that was, I think, a tremendous uh, uh, uh element in terms of getting mental strength and resilience uh and and looking you know looking forward you know and not dwelling on on the past if you've made a mistake or not dwelling on the past if you hit a brilliant winner but getting into the present and uh you know it uh, was quite a quite a development and a happening that you know you didn't as a junior you didn't even know it was really happening to you you were just you were just going through that process instinctively. Yeah, so I I went through a very, very similar experience as you did. You're saying you got exposed by going to Forest Hills. The warm-up tournament the week before Forest Hills was held in my hometown, Maplewood, South Orange, New Jersey, uh, at the Orange Lawn Tennis Club, and all the top players were there getting ready for the U.S. Open and, of course, trying to win Orange Lawn as well. And I would go every single day, and the matches started like around 11 o'clock. So in the morning, I'd meet my buddy, and one day I would serve like John Newcomb and imitate him. The next day, I'd serve like Roy Emerson and imitate him. And what you say about that ability to see and then copy what you see is was such a great way to learn because we weren't overthinking with too many verbal cues. We were just trying to say, what if I look just like this guy? How's it working out for my, my stroke? Whatever it happens to be. Um, you were saying that right off the bat when you started playing tennis your volleys were pretty good that was very rare in those days was there a particular player who you said um emulating his volley yeah i had a um a, a man who was about 10 years older than i was he lived on, on the street where the um where the tennis courts were and i lived on the next block and he had a relationship with uh, my father they played the junior seniors uh, at our club when I was too young to play with my father and he um, he could not play with his father because his father was you know had had to give up uh, tennis because of a you know an ailment or something so um, he happened to have a very very good volley 
And I saw him play and I played with him uh, eventually, probably for, you know, thousands of hours. And um, he technically was very good with the volleys. His backhand ground stroke was really good too. His forehand wasn't really quite as, as good. Serve was decent. So I had, I had that one person to uh, really look at on a constant basis. And then I would also get, you know, information from uh, those times when I went to, you know, the, the, at Forest Hills uh, and getting down there to see those players and uh, I remember we used to imitate, like looking at our shadows on the ground, we used to imitate the serve motions mm. of the different players. Like Tony Roach had a really unique motion and, um, you know, Newcomb had uh, had something and Rosewall had something that was a little bit different. And um, But I just, I just think that uh, it was lucky to be able to have some... Uh, role models and some examples that were of high quality um, to actually follow and help to develop in our subconscious, like how you swing at a ball. Yeah. I mean, that's all, that's all really true. And I think uh, one exercise, which I haven't yet asked our students to do. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Scott and I worked together on Thursdays with a group of very inspired players, and they're coming along really, really well. But one thing I want to bring up with them is, whom have you seen on TV that you really like the way they do something? And I'd like you for the next five minutes to pretend you're that person and imitate what you've seen. And I think it could be a, a throwback to the way that you and I learn tennis, and it could be a pretty big help for everybody. But I think that self-starting way that you and I both learn tennis had several other benefits. For example, I was mentioning just before how much I hated to lose. When I was about nine years old, I was playing with my mom one day and I was pretty new to the game and she was beating me and I was throwing my racket after every error. And she said, if you throw your racket one more time, we're done for the day. Well, I tested it out. I threw my racket. She picked up the balls and we were done for the day. And I was like, no, no, no. I want to keep playing. Well, no, we're not going to keep playing because you're misbehaving. This is not the way you behave on a tennis court. And the other thing that I know you did as well is besides the kids you may have hit with, we filled in as a fourth in a lot of games with adults. And you learn several things from doing that that makes you a tennis player. One is just the etiquette involved of, oh, the ball's out of play. Who's going to get it to the server in a timely fashion and wait till they're looking before you hit the ball over to them and hit it at a nice, easy speed and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we got, it's one thing I think are, is missing from a lot of the kids today because they play with other kids in these big junior programs. If none of them really know the right way to behave on a tennis court, then they don't have any model of uh, how they want to do some of these things 
um, when they're actually playing. Yeah, I get very exasperated. Um, for those of you who don't know, but I'm the varsity coach for Fox Lane for the boys and the girls. And we'll be in the middle of a match and the ball from one court will go behind the other person, their teammates court or whatever the next match. And they'll just walk right behind the match while the point is in play to go retrieve their ball. And it's just like ludicrous that they don't think that that's distracting either. It would be to them or to their, to their uh, partners and uh, classmates. But um you know, it's really, it's really a, a, a funny thing to see that uh, there's no logic in that. And, you know, they just don't seem to care. Uh, but, I mean, it doesn't seem to bother them. I mean, you know, they're just so used to this chaos and people going all over the place. As they mature as players, they start to, uh, you know, get a little bit more like John McEnroe, who was like picking out the smallest little movement in the stands. Uh, if somebody was was doing something he was complaining to the ref he's like are you kidding sit down already <laughs> but you're absolutely right bob those are things that we were learning by experience because uh, the elders at our club the adults were guiding us and um it's very uh it's very interesting to look back on uh, that whole process that we were involved in so when i was 13 i was ranked number three in the East in the boys 14 and under. I had not had one private lesson before that moment. And in fact, the local, the pro at the local club where I played, I played at the local club and also the public parks, which was a great mix of players between the two different locations. The pro at my local club, because my game was pretty much self-taught and not refined although i was a good competitor he said to me one day i just want to let you know if you keep doing what you're doing you're going nowhere in tennis <laughs> <laughs> so um that spring then after i had that ranking we used to go as a family to pompano beach every year and stay at this place called the silver thatch inn where the pro was Warren Woodcock, who was a member of the Australian Davis Cup team. And I had three or four half-hour private lessons with him. Uh, I can't recall anything uh, <laughs> that he was saying to me because all I wanted to do as the student was impress upon him that I was good. So he may have been trying to do some things. I mean, I remember one specific example. He was trying to show me how short the motion on the volley was. And I was standing maybe 10 feet away from him. And he said, I'm going to give you a really easy shot. And I want you to take a full swing and slam it right at me as hard as you can. And I was like, whoa. So I did. And he reflexed the ball back. And then he said to me, that's a volley. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that, uh, that kind of learning process because very often we get, um, you know, way over left brained and, um, you know, expressing it in words and concepts. And some people learn 
uh, quite well that way. But especially for young players like Warren just gave you such an example of how the concept that he was getting at was illustrated through those actions. And I'm sure that it just was embedded in your brain because here we are 50 years later, uh, maybe 60 years later, and you remember it vividly. Um, right. So uh, I think I think that uh, tennis instructors need to know who they're talking to and, and who they have on the court as to uh, how to teach them properly and use, um, you know, physical motion and things that are illustrations physically, as well as conceptual um, information that uh, a lot of people enjoy uh, having uh, from their lessons. Um, so most but, lessons, maybe um, when I finally had these lessons, these couple of lessons, they focused exclusively on technique of how to hit this shot or how to hit that shot. There really wasn't much talk about how you use that to create an overall uh, uh, scheme or strategy for right. being successful on the court. But I did have an ally in that regard. At around the age of 11, I got given this book, I forget who gave it to me, How to Play Better Tennis by William T. Tilden, one of the greatest players of early tennis history. And in the last couple of chapters in that book, he has quite a bit to say about different tactics and strategy and mixing spins and speeds. And when I went back and read that, when I first became a pro in the late seventies, I was like, boy, is this guy tennis has changed so much. There's no way you can do all this stuff with spins and speeds. And lo and behold, as hard as the modern players play, the variety is exactly what Bill Tilden was talking about. And he gave me some basic, let's say singles tactics, like run someone side to side, to tire them out. And then you can play off that. Run them side to side until they're certain you're running them side to side and then hit behind them. So simple things like this gave me some tools when I went out there on the court with my homemade shots uh, and my hating to lose. And I added in some of these Tilden components that I think were invaluable for me because I was at a young age on my own thinking about what tactics and strategy can work out here against a given player. I mean, in this 14 and under, I played, you know his name well, Scott, Bob Tennis, went on to play after uh, high school tennis in New Jersey, number one and two at the University of Georgia, a top tennis school. And in 35 and overs was a national hardcore champion, winning the title out in California. Well, I watched him play. I knew I was going to play him the following day, and I stayed to watch his match in the New Jersey State Boys tournament. And I said to my mom on the way home, I really hope I win a game. Because he <laughs> had picture-perfect strokes. Everything was hit cleanly. He was a good athlete. He was fast. 
I had my competitiveness and my other stuff, but I was like, this guy is so much better than me. It's not even going to be close. I ended up beating him. It was before the days of tiebreakers, eight, six, seven, five. And then lo and behold, three weeks later, I had to play him again in another tournament. And I was like, well, now he's ready for me. He's going to kill me. <laughs> this time I beat him four and four. Okay. So, um, so that I'm, I guess my point for the, the listeners is what you and I had to deal with as young teenagers, finding a way to win was basically a form of accelerated development of how to make good judgments on the court. And certainly it's valuable when I'm out there coaching, I frequently tell players what choice I would have made if they've done something different. But I also feel like they're not out there alone quite enough to develop that muscle on their own, that that muscle that analyzes things. You, you you would agree that you got into having to do that right off the bat with your tennis, correct? Yeah, and I, I don't think I was even like even conscious of it. And I don't think that um, it was quite the same process as the uh, other sports that I played because I played baseball, basketball, and football. And there you had coaches and they would throw out certain kinds of uh ideas and information and basics and stuff so i don't think that uh, the thought process was at all the same when you get on a tennis court um and there weren't a lot of good instructors around for you anyway you had to kind of figure it out yourself through experiencing certain things uh when you're practicing and playing matches and then analyzing it somehow um to get some con con some conclusions out of it that you could then take forward and say well i'm not going to do that anymore or i gotta make you know fewer unforced errors uh or i have to learn to see what my opponent's weakness is and start to exploit that earlier um you know these were all like sort of natural processes that were processes that were going on um because you you wanted to figure out a way to prevail in the matches because as as you stated, you know, I hated to lose. Um, so you know your 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 brain and your you know your energies were going to work overtime in figuring out ways, even if you didn't have like great coaching, figure out ways um, you know to make that happen. Yeah, so um, I'm recalling now one other difference, at least my experience, and I'm not saying with Warren Woodcock, that was family vacation, so it didn't apply there. But any other lessons I had subsequent to that, of which there were very few, uh, it was very typical that the coach would work on something with me and then say, and here's your homework go to the shop and book a lesson in a month, go work on it on your own. And let's see how you're doing with what I've shown you today. 
And I think there was something particularly valuable about working on it on your own, whether that meant hitting with someone and just trying to reinforce what you had learned in the lesson. But it also meant, Scott, like hitting against the wall if there wasn't someone and trying to figure it out there. Or if it came to serving, it meant getting out a bucket of balls and hitting 50 or 60 serves and seeing if you could figure out on your own exactly what you want to have happen. How valuable, because I think you had shared with me that you went through similar experiences with the wall and the bucket of balls. How valuable do you think that was in your development as a player? Hugely. Um, because you you needed your body to repeat these motions and get feedback. And that's something I wanted to touch on uh, a little bit more, even though we're, we're beginning to get near the end of uh, this podcast. But, you know, the feedback in tennis is that you can do everything wrong and still win in certain cases. So you have to be careful about having any kind of like results uh, result-oriented analysis, you cannot say, well, I won that point, so I must have done the right things. Very often you do the wrong things and you get positive feedback. And the biggest one is, oh, I won the point or I won the game or I won the match. But you know what? You have real problems in your game that need to be changed, but the game itself may not be telling you or showing you the way because Tennis is a very intricate game on a lot of levels. So it takes a certain kind of mind, especially since when we were pretty young, we had to look through a lot of these things and try to get, uh, you know, our information straight in terms of what our beliefs were going to be, because the game may or may not teach you exactly how to play properly. But I think that between you and myself, Bob, like there were many different sources of information that we were using, whether it was hitting on the wall, hitting with the adults, hitting with uh, watching players at the uh, at Forest Hills uh, and at Orange Lawn, and just taking all of this information and trying to, you know, channel it into a methodology where, you know, we could become better players. Um, so it's really, you know, this is a great subject that you, uh, you tapped into Bob because it's really fantastic when you were looking back on our histories going back to you know when I was starting at at five years old uh, and and seeing what uh, what actually transpired you know it's uh, it's pretty uh, amazing. It is, and then I mean for me also there was the uh, I wanted to play, and I remember. Uh, telling my dad, let's go play tennis. And he went out and he he hit with me for like two minutes. And then he said, let's get the balls and go home. You're not good enough. You got to go play with your friends and figure out how to do this better before I'm going to play with you. So I know modern <laughs> parents listening to this would be like, oh my God, what a horrible dad. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in, in this case, um, it did spur me on. And before uh, I was playing uh, any tournaments or anything, 
the the first town that I grew up in, I used to have a bunch of kids in the neighborhood and I'd play with each one of them. This lasted about six months once a week, but there were four of them. So I was playing four days a week and they were each playing once a week. So you can imagine after six months, this was six love, six love, six love. And that phase was over, but it got me good enough to where I could go out with my dad and he would play with me. And we were playing on one of those Florida trips when I was pretty young. And my first set I ever played against him, I won one game. Okay. The next day he beat me love and love. <laughs> and I went nuts again, throwing my racket all over the place because I wanted to desperately win that one game. And he wasn't going to give it to me. Yeah. Um, I had to earn it. So how old were you when you finally beat him in a match or a set or, you know, however that played out? Uh, I would say 12 or 13 that year that I got ranked in the 14 and unders. And I also managed to beat the club champion uh, in singles who then had the tennis committee change the age rule for the men's singles to require a minimum age of 18 so that I couldn't be in there and play against him and he could retain the title so uh you know this is the way things were i didn't make yeah. too big a deal about it but um yeah i was like 12 when i beat my dad uh-huh i mean our, our, our dads were not like great great players but they had played for a while and they knew their way around the court so it was pretty good for a uh 11 12 13 year old to be able to beat their dad plus yeah, i'd say my, my, my dad was like a b or a b plus yeah. you know psychological yeah. part of it too and playing against your dad oh my gosh that was a great thing to go through very makes you really grow up and see what uh being nervous is all about <laughs> well listeners thank you for tuning in today and um we hope thanks everybody that we've inspired you to go out develop your analytical skills they're key and do some practicing against the wall do some practicing in between lessons and you'll have big rewards. Thank you again all for joining us and thank you, Scott. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, everybody.